Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. When I was growing up, the pastor of this church where we attended would often say, the Christian life is either a burning fever or a boring habit. It's either a burning obsession that consumes all of your life, or it's just a boring habit. Let me ask you, if you had to rate your Christian life this morning on a scale of one to 10, one being very sick and 10 being thriving and healthy, how would you rate your Christian life? Would it be closer to a passionate burning obsession for you? Or would you say that it is closer to being just a dull habit, just something you do week after week without much thought or intention? The text before us that Janine has read is one of the key passages in the whole New Testament on how to live the Christian life. It follows directly after one of the most profound texts on the person and work of Jesus Christ, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So in order to correctly really understand the text that we have before us, we need to understand the context. And you will get some good questions in that study guide about the context of this text. The text begins, you see, with the word therefore, which tells us that the words which follow are directly related to the words that came just before. Now remember, in the original text, there were no chapters or verses And as we examine the flow of argument, we find that Paul begins this larger section way back in chapter 1, verse 27. And in this section, from chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 18, Paul exhorts the church to live a life 
in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is his main theme. Live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And then first of all, he applies this precept to how believers live before a watching world in verses 27 through 30. <clears throat> then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul tells them how to live with each other, toward each other, within the fellowship, so that they are worthy of the gospel. And then in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul emphasizes the attitude of humility and sacrificial love for others by, by reminding them that this was the attitude of Christ himself when he left the majestic glories of heaven to come to earth and live among us as a human being. And so now Paul comes to the logical conclusion of his argument in the text before us. Live your new life in Christ in a manner worthy of the gospel before a watching world and toward those in the family of God following the example of Jesus Christ himself. And you do that, Paul says, with these words, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. By living in a manner worthy of the gospel, you are working out your own salvation. Paul is going to the very core of what it means to live for Christ. It's not just how we live, but it is becoming what God has planned for us to become when he redeemed us out of sin and brought us into the family of God. He's talking about the process of salvation, the process of becoming a full child of God. Now, before we dig into the exact meaning of that phrase, we need to remind ourselves to whom Paul is speaking. By knowing to whom he addresses this important message, we can under, better understand what he is saying. And Paul is addressing, he says, my beloved, the loved saints in Philippi. In chapter 1, Paul calls these believers the saints who are at Philippi, verse 1. And Paul held these people as close and cherished friends in his heart because they were partakers with him of the grace of God, chapter 1, verse 7. They were partners with him in the gospel, in verse 5. These people had heard the gospel, Paul proclaimed, and they had received it by faith and with joy and had given themselves to following the same Christ as Paul. And because of their faith, Paul is convinced that God had begun a work of transformation in them that would continue until the day of Christ when he comes again. 
That's all in verse 6. So when Paul says now to these dear beloved followers of Christ, work out your own salvation, it must be obvious that he is not saying work in order to obtain or earn your salvation. They already have salvation. They're already born again by the Spirit of God. They are already partakers of the gospel and partners in salvation. So Paul is not telling them how to be saved or how to gain salvation. So what does he mean by the word work out your salvation? Well, in the Greek, it's a very simple word. It just simply means do your salvation. Bring about or produce your salvation. Cause to happen your salvation. So we could say it something like this. Cause to happen in your life the salvation you have already received into your heart. Put it into practice. Cause to happen in your life the salvation you have received already in your heart. Now, we need to be very clear by what Paul means by salvation. The Bible, you see, speaks of salvation as a process. And it has a past and a present and a future. In the past, there was the process or the step of justification. And in the present, we are working out that salvation in a process of sanctification. And in the future, we will be delivered from the presence of sin as we are glorified with Christ. So notice these steps. Justification. God is freeing us from the penalty of sin. And this happened in the past when we accepted Christ as our Savior. We have now been justified by his blood. It was in the past. But then there is the process of sanctification when God separates us from the lure and the attraction of sin. 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. It's being set apart and separated from sin. Sanctification is the process by which Christians are set apart for God from the rest of the world. The process by which Christians are made holy. Think of sanctification something like this. We received justification as a gift, and we're no longer guilty. And then we sit down and we spend the rest of our lives saying, and now, what am I supposed to do with this? This new life that I have. How is this supposed to work? 
Where does this go? And how does that fit in? And how do I do all of this so it matches what I am now in Christ? And that's the joy and the adventure of sanctification. It's not some immediate, instantaneous transformation where something becomes suddenly perfect. No, it is a joyful discovery. Sometimes it can be very painful. I think it's sort of like getting married. <clears throat> when you get married, you think, oh, I'm going to have this ceremony, and we're going to go up, and we're going to repeat the vows, and, and then we're going to kiss the bride, and then we're going to, he's going to say, you're, now you're a husband and wife, and boom, ba-boom, and it's all done, and it's finished, and we're married. <laughs> no, it's not finished. It's just started. And for the rest of your life, you work out what it means to be married. That's such a wonderful analogy. Because in this process of sanctification, we're working out what God has already planted in us. So that someday we reach the third state of our salvation, glorification when God finally removes from us all sin, from, and we are delivered from even the presence of sin. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, transformed completely into his likeness, without sin, and living with eternal life in his presence forever. That is the culmination of the whole process of salvation. So now when Paul says, put into practice the new life you received by God's grace when you were justified by faith, he is talking about this present process of salvation called sanctification. And he's exhorting these dearly beloved saints to, to exert every effort in the pursuit of holiness. Paul is calling them to action, a continuous sustained effort to work out their salvation. Paul talks about this effort, this striving, this struggling in our Christian life in chapter 3, and we'll come to this later in our study. Chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. The pursuit of holiness and sanctification requires a struggle, arduous pursuit of the goal.
Now, it almost sounds like, if that's all we had to say, that sanctification depends on our efforts and our work. And I can hear some of you right now shouting silently on the inside, saying to me, that can't be true. It can't depend on me and my efforts to grow into maturity and to become more like Christ. The goal is simply not possible for any human being to achieve. We cannot on our own become perfect. And you know that within yourself, and I know it. We do not have the strength or the wisdom or the desire to achieve such a goal. Sanctification cannot depend on my efforts. And you're right. You cannot, on your own, transform yourself into the likeness of Jesus Christ. You simply do not have the wisdom or the strength or the desire to reach that goal. It is only with God's help and work in us that we could ever make progress in our Christian life. And that's exactly what Paul tells us in the text. Work out your salvation for, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This phrase has to be one of the key ones, the most precious ones in this text. For it is God who works in you. You work out your salvation because God is working in you. Please note, this is a statement of reality. There is no conditional phrase here. Paul does not say, if God works in you, and he does not say when God works in you, it is a statement of fact, God is at work in you. God is in you, and he is working. And what is God doing in us? He is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. He's at work at the very core of my being, in my will, the place where I make decisions, I make choices. That's the very core of who I am. And he's there helping me to make those decisions, to make evaluations, to select things, and to determine what actions I'm going to follow. My will is under the working hand of God within me. And even more than that, God is working to energize me, to give me the wisdom and the strength to do what he has called me to do. And Paul said it in, ver in chapter 1, verse 9, I pray that your love for God will abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. This is a mystery. <laughs> and Paul doesn't go on to explain really how that happens. He just says, this is what's going on. God works according to his good pleasure in us. Even though I have a will and I have strength, 
Yet God is working there. I work and he works. And he's working so that he can accomplish the purposes of his divine grace for his good pleasure, for what pleases him, for my good. This is the purpose of God, that he will complete in me the transformation into the likeness of his dear son, Jesus Christ. So God is working, and I am working. Well, which is it? Who is doing what? How can you make sense of this? Is it God in me, or is it me who works? Well, it's both. God works, and my works are concurrent realities. Look at the text. Work out your salvation. God works within you. Work out, work in. And they're both happening at once. It is a participant of both of us in the process called sanctification. Now, this amazing notion that we participate together with God in this process of transformation is all over in Scripture. And I think we need to point this out. Let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. Paul gives the exhortation to Timothy, reflect on all these things. Now, does that sound like something we are supposed to do? Well, yes, exactly. It's a de is it demanding? Well, yes, it takes some effort. Who does it? We do it. Does anybody do it for you? No, you have to do it for yourself. If you don't reflect on the Bible, you'll never know the Bible. God will not come and teach you the Bible any other way at all. He will not give it to you through dreams. He will not pour it into your ears when you're asleep at night. He calls you to reflect on all these things. That's our part. And in the very same verse, he says, and the Lord will give you insight. We do the reflecting, and God gives us the insight. He doesn't give us the insight without the reflecting. The reflecting is our part. The insight is God's part. Another example, Colossians 1.28. Paul gives this tremendous statement, we proclaim him. He's talking about his ministry of evangelism. And he says, this is my task. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That's what we do. We proclaim him, we admonish, we teach everybody with all wisdom so that everyone may be presented perfect in Christ, so that everyone might grow in maturity, so that everyone might cross the line with successfully. And then in verse 29, he says, for this I toil. Who's doing the laboring? It's Paul. Who's doing the struggling? Paul. How is he struggling? He says, with all his energy, which so powerfully works within me. I'm doing all the struggling, and how do I get to struggle? Because of the energy 
He supplies. God works in me, and I submit to his energy as a glove moves with a hand in it. Our confidence, you see, in this Christian life does not depend on my efforts. It depends on the work of God within me. But the focus of my attention, the focus of my Christian life is to consciously work sustained effort to obey the calling and the work of God within me. So the process of sanctification is a balance between our working out what has already been planted within us. What I do is empowered and energized by God who is in me. There's so much more that could be said, but let me just in closing call our attention to three conditions of how this should take place in our life. First of all, we are to work out our salvation at all times. The very first phrase in verse 12, obey the Lord whether I am present with you or absent from you as I am now while in prison. This is the same idea that he had in verse Chapter 1, verse 27, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, whether I come and see you or an, am absent. When I read that, <clears throat> this terrible image came into my mind about when I was a student in high school. I was a student at Fort Collins High School when it was still down there in that building, which is now the CSU Arts Center, you know, with the pillars and everything. And it was springtime, and it was hot, and there was no air conditioning, and the windows were open. We were up on the third floor looking out over that garden down there where we should have been playing football or something. And oh, it was right after lunch, one o'clock, and the teacher was blah, 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 droning on about I have no idea what. <laughs> when suddenly she was called out of the room for something, I don't know, and she left and all bedlam broke loose. We started throwing spit wads. We started throwing things around. We started talking. We started writing on the board. I even picked up a girl's shoe she had left under her desk and threw it out the window. And wouldn't you know it, the blind there had a cord coming down and it, that shoe got caught right into the cord. And there it was swinging when the teacher came walking back in. <laughs> Dale did it. He did that. <laughs> Paul is saying, do this all the time, not just when the teacher is in the room, not just when the pastor is looking. Do it even when the pastor is gone, even when the teacher isn't there, at all times, work out your salvation. Then Paul goes on to say we should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this does not mean that we are to cringe in fear before God, afraid that somehow he's going to punish us 
for every disobedience and every failure. Rather, this is a fear of trembling, of godly seriousness because we are in the presence of a majestic God. He is looking all the time. He's the teacher that is always present. And we are to work <clears throat> with fear and trembling, with awe and respect of his amazing grace and glory. It's like coming into the presence of Queen Elizabeth. Now, we wouldn't be afraid to come into our presence. We wouldn't be afraid that somehow she's going to have our heads chopped off. She, she isn't going to do that. No, it's the kind of fear that somehow I'm going to do something stupid that would dishonor her and disgrace her, and that's just totally unworthy of her eminent, her royalty. And our greatest fear is that we would do something that would discredit the honor of our majestic, glorious Savior. That is the kind of awe and respect that we should have as we're seeking to work out our salvation and put it into practice. We're doing this in the presence of a holy God. We're doing this all the time. And finally it says in verse 14, we need to do that without grumbling or questioning. Now that might sound like a new command, but in the way that it's written into the text, there's no conjunction, there's no transition, no word and or anything. It's just a quick continuation. And most commentators say, God, Paul is just explaining how we are to work it out. We're to do it without grumbling and without complaining. Because I think Paul is saying, hearing some of those Philippians, you don't understand, Paul, the situation I'm in. You don't understand what I'm facing these days. Now, they're saying that to Paul, who himself is in prison on death row. But they're saying, you know, my life is not easy. And... I know you say to work this out, but you know what God is putting me through right now? It's not easy. Things are hard, and it just doesn't seem fair. It's like that word is used in the first early church when the Greek widows were being neglected in the distribution of food, and they were grumbling because they were being neglected. And it was this spirit of discontent, just sort of whispering, things aren't right, this isn't fair, what's going on here, quit playing games. And this grumbling because of the unfairness of the situation. 
The biggest example, I think, of this kind of grumbling was in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. They had been delivered from the land of Egypt. They'd been delivered from slavery. God had taken them across on dry land, across the Red Sea, and all the army of Pharaoh had been destroyed, and there they were, free at last. And what did they do? They complained because they didn't have any good water to drink. God, who had just miraculously delivered them in amazing miracles that no one else had ever seen before. And what did they do? Oh, God, you who can divide and part the Red Sea, why can't you give us something to drink here? Are you just bringing us out here so we can die of thirst in the desert? You don't understand, God, what we're going through. And because of their complaining and their questioning, God cursed that generation and they never, ever entered the land of promise. Grumbling is a serious thing. But I know by experience how easy it is to fall into that kind of discontent in our lives. Last three weeks, I've been struggling with the flu. It's just a flu. I'm not in prison on death row. It's nothing like Paul had. But nevertheless, it's the flu, and I do not like to be sick. Especially for three weeks. And yet God, in his providence, has led me through this experience. And I begin to think, Lord, this is enough. I can't think straight. I can't sleep well. I'm getting exhausted. I can't prepare my lessons. I can't prepare this sermon. Lord, I'm not able to do your, your work. And so, Lord, I don't know, but you need to heal me. Enough is enough. And there was just silence. And the cold kept going, and the cough kept, kept coming. I don't know what I had done without NyQuil. <laughs> you see, I was just so unhappy. Are you playing games with me, Lord? This just isn't fair. I'm trying to do your work, and so why am I suffering like this? Enough is enough. I have plans. I'm, I'm trying to do your work, Lord. But peace by little step, God was telling me, not your will, but mine. Yes, work out your salvation, but it was not easy. It was not easy for me. There were nights when I just struggled and I just complained. And I wasn't trusting the Lord. And yet God was saying, I have something to do in you. You need to trust me. Depend on me. And wait on me. 
And as I quieted my heart, and piece by little piece, believe me, I began to let go and let God have his way. And it wasn't the cold, it wasn't the flu, it was what God was doing in my heart. And I began to realize that he was teaching me, trust me, even when things fall apart, even when things don't go well, even when you don't feel like it, even when you can't think straight, even when you don't have the energy to do the next thing. And you know, amazingly, I was able to sit down and the thoughts came. And I was able to write it out. So that, by the time I came here this morning, and the message that I have been giving to you this morning is what God has given me, not what I fabricated myself. It was God working in me. And what I'm telling you this morning is God's word for you and for us. Work out your salvation, for God is at work in you. And because of that, you cannot fail. Do you live with that kind of confidence, that kind of joy? Is your Christian life that kind of adventure? I'm going to give every ounce of energy I can to it. But it is not me, for it is Christ that lives in me. May God help us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him, because it is God himself who is working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Amen. Heavenly Father, We bow before you, and we humbly submit to you. Thank you for the life you've given us, the justification that, that from sin, we are free from sin, but now you are working to transform us. Oh, what a privilege it is to live for you even with a cold, even without a job, even with illness, even with cancer, even with all of the things we're facing, we cannot fail because you are at work in us. For this, Father, we humbly say thank you. For by great your grace, we live. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.